Welcome back to the Dirt Show. A lot has happened since the last time um, we spoke, including my cap and my tooth again falling out. So sorry if I look like somebody who um, shouldn't be on television. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get it fixed. In any event, today we're going to talk about the Alex Jones case. We're going to analyze the First Amendment, punitive damages, compensatory damages, malice, all of the issues that are floating around. Uh, let me start uh, with what is uh, protected. Um, Alex Jones could have said that uh, Sandy Hook never happened. It was a segment of the imagination. It was just uh, uh, created by the media, just like people have said that men didn't land on the moon. Uh, NASA created a film of men landing on the moon. Uh, but let me tell you what you can't say. When you say that it's fake that men landed on the moon, you can't then say that Neil Armstrong is a liar for claiming that he set foot on the moon. That turns a general statement about events into a defamatory statement about a person. And the same thing was true with uh, Sandy Hook. Uh, he could have made broad allegations about conspiracies, all of that. But once he began to focus on specific parents, that's what became uh, defamation. Now, Interestingly enough, under the law of most jurisdictions, you can't defame anybody who's no longer uh, alive. Um, and uh, once a person dies, in general, they lose their right to bring a defamation case. That's why some people on the opposite side of, of my case have essentially said, look, we can't beat Dershowitz in court, but maybe we can outlive him. And um, and so uh, there have been all kind of efforts to postpone delay and uh, try to outlive me. But that's the law in, in most jurisdictions. You can then sue for other things, emotional distress, even when uh, somebody's not alive. But the actual tort of defamation generally um, ends with the death of the individual. It's an absurd rule. As Shakespeare said, uh, you know, nothing is more important than reputation. And uh, people care about their reputation after they're gone. Um, and uh, the law should be changed to allow defamation lawsuits to be brought on behalf of people who were defamed in their lifetime. Um, I agree, it shouldn't be able to be brought for people who are defamed after death. People say Jefferson was a terrible person or Washington was a terrible person or Lincoln was a terrible person. Um, they should be able to say that, those are historic events. But if they say that Dershowitz did something you know, had sex with a, an underage person, that's defamatory and false. And uh, if I were to die, it would still be a blemish on my reputation and the law should be changed to allow my heirs uh, to bring such a lawsuit. But that's not, that's not the law today. So Alex Jones is, is alive. Uh, the people who he defamed, some of them are alive and some of them are, are dead. Uh, obviously, the children uh, who were killed uh, are dead. The parents are alive. And let there be no mistake about it. What Alex Jones did was disgraceful. It was fake news. He made it all up. There was no basis for it. He can sue me now for, for defamation. Go ahead. Um, there was no basis for it. And it was a revolting thing to do, to demean the memory of dead children and insult their parents and defame their parents in a way that he did the jury was right to say that there should be punitive uh, damages. Now, that doesn't mean that everything will be affirmed on appeal. Uh, appeals look at the law. 
uh, and they look at the First Amendment and they look at um, precedent. Uh, they don't look necessarily at what we look at, what a terrible thing it was for him to to do that. And there are several possible bases for appeal, one which will almost certainly lose, and that is just the defamation claim on the merits, him saying, well, I didn't really defame anybody or I didn't have malice when I did it. These are private people, so you don't need malice. All you need is negligence or uh, willfulness or, you know, just uh, a lie. Um, uh, and, and it seems fairly clear to me that an appellate court will uphold a jury verdict in that regard. Now, you know, there is a, uh, a joker in the deck um, um, because what happened is apparently, in the, I haven't gotten the story completely straight up, checked it out, but apparently his lawyers by accident sent his um, messages, tweets, I don't know what exactly, uh, to the other side. Uh, wasn't intended to do. I've had that happen. I've gotten material accidentally from the other side. And what I do is immediately destroy it. Um, it's unethical to read it. And I play by the rules. And probably that's what the lawyer should have done on the other side. They should have said, look, you sent this by mistake. We're not going to read it. We're going to destroy it or send it back to you, whatever. That didn't happen. And he was confronted with some of those um, texts uh, in his uh, testimony and cross-examination. And at least according to some people, his critics, um, when confronted with these texts, uh, they, they, they established that he wasn't necessarily telling telling the truth, which gives rise to another issue. Could there be a perjury prosecution? I'll talk to that in a minute. Before we get to that, though, let's finish up with the civil issue. So there'll be three grounds for appeal, probably more, but three grounds at least. Number one, that what he did was protected by the First Amendment, that will lose. Number two, that what his lawyers did um, influenced the outcome of the case, and it was legal malpractice, whatever. I don't know enough about the facts to know whether that would prevail or not. That would only get him a new trial. And even without the text, I think the jury would find against him on the issue of pure liability. And then the next issue has to do with damages. It seems to me that the $4 million of compensatory damages probably will be upheld if there is evidence in the record to show that there was specific losses, uh, reputational losses, emotional losses, uh, that was suffered by the people who were defamed. Then the next issue is uh, 10 times the amount of uh, compensatory damages were awarded in punitive damages over $40 million for around four or so million dollars for the compensatory damages. And a lot of appellate courts uh, look hard at that ratio and will reduce the amount of um, punitive damages to a lower ratio to the actual compensatory damages. So it wouldn't surprise me if the uh, court uh, were to uphold, say, $10 million or $9 million or somewhere in between in punitive damage. That would still be a pretty good slap on the wrist. Um, it would mean that he'd have to pay, you know, around 14 or $15 million. Um, his company made a lot of money on this. His company exploited it, took advantage of uh, fake news and lies. And, um, you know, whether he has that money left, whether he'll have to go bankrupt, um, whether there'll be any possibility of collecting, I don't know for sure. But there will be some, some appellate uh, review of this and some 
appellate reversal. Remember too that punitive damages are intended A, to send a message and B, to prevent a recurrence. And that's particularly important in this case because uh, here's a guy who's made a living on lies, made a living on making up stories. Now, it's interesting because probably some of the things that he said have been true and probably some of them have been true and they haven't been reported by the other media. But we know that a great many of what he said were completely, completely made up and no rational person could actually believe that the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School didn't happen. Of course it happened. And um, even if you don't apply a reasonable man standard, if you just apply, would anybody actually believe that this didn't happen? Of course not. No rational person would believe that. And I doubt very much that um, Alex Jones believed it. I mean, he was just selling soap. Uh, and selling subscriptions and making money off these lies. And so punitive damages seems uh, appropriate. Um, I'm suing for punitive damages against CNN because what they did was so deliberate and willful, and uh, they have to be taught a lesson as well, not to make up stories about people whose politics they disapprove of or who, whose representation they disapprove of. So, you know, we're hoping that we'll get uh, punitive damages as well, but courts are, are concerned about punitive damages getting out of hand. There have been some cases in some parts of the country where punitive damages has been, you know, a hundred times the compensatory damages. And in those cases, the courts have have reversed. So we're we're a long way away from this case being resolved. There's always a possibility it could be settled. It doesn't strike me. Alex Jones doesn't strike me as the settling type. I've seen cases like this settle instead of uh, both sides taking a chance on the appeal of, what is it, 50, $44 million in, in verdicts. You know, they come and they settle for $5 million and, 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 and the appeal is withdrawn. It wouldn't shock me if this were a normal, ordinary person, that would be a, an expected possible a resolution. Of course, this is Alex Jones, and he lives and dies by his reputation. And were he to settle the case, it would be seen by many as a kind of admission that he he made up. He made up the entire uh, story. Um, look, you know, his other defense may very well be: Look, I'm I'm not really a journalist. I'm an entertainer, and uh, I entertain by exaggerating and by puffing, but. That won't work here. This was, uh, again, specific. You can be an entertainer and you can exaggerate in general, or you can be a politician and exaggerate in general. It is constitutionally protected speech to lie. Um, as Justice uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist once said, uh, the First Amendment doesn't distinguish between truth and falsehood in general. In general, um, you, know, you can say that the uh, South won the Civil War. Uh, you can say the British won the Revolutionary War. Those, those are all protected forms of lies, protected forms of speech, as long as you don't say that uh, a living person was the cause of the defeat when, the, when, there was no, when there was no defeat. The law gives a lot of breathing room to freedom of speech, and, and breathing room requires that we allow uh, honest mistakes. Honest mistakes are protected by the Constitution when they involve public figures. You know, the interesting point that Sandy Hook raises is what if you have a situation where the event is a public event, a major public event. This was, of course, a major public event. 
but the people involved in it are not public people. There's a case on that in the Supreme Court, the Desperate Hours case where a family was held hostage and um, they sued, they became public figures as the result of the fame of the case, but they didn't themselves thrust themselves into the, into the limelight. And so, you know, generally, uh, you have to take some action to make yourself a public figure. Obviously, running for office um, makes you a public figure. Um, sometimes even, you know, going on television or uh, bringing yourself to the public, for example, my false accuser is clearly, has clearly become a public figure. She's all over the media. Uh, she can't stop talking. She can't stop lying. She can't stop making up fake stories about me. And she has thrust herself into the status of a public uh, figure. Of course, I'm a public figure and I wouldn't dispute that because, you know, I've written 50 books and I've litigated a lot of cases and I have a podcast and I guess having a podcast makes you a public figure. And so this case is not over. And not only is this case not over, but it is probably just the beginning of a lot of other cases. Um, I'm told that President Trump, former President Trump, is either thinking about or actually has sued um, CNN for, for defamation. <laughs> they certainly have defamed him. He's a public figure and he has to show malice as, as I have to uh, show malice in my case against uh, CNN. There are other people as well who are now contemplating a suing. Some of them are doing it because they believe, and I believe, that the Supreme Court may very well modify the malice requirement for public uh, figures because it's very hard. It's a very daunting task to uh, find uh, uh, malice, even when the lie is uh, obvious. Um, some of you may know that I was one of the law clerks uh, on New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, it was my year as a clerk in the Supreme Court, and my justice, Arthur Goldberg, wrote a concurring opinion, which my law clerk um, was primarily responsible for, Lee McTernan, but uh, I participated uh, actively in conversations, discussions, and editing of that uh, concurring uh, opinion. And I've litigated, you know, dozens and dozens of First Amendment cases since that time. And so, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the terrain. And if I had to predict, and Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, the job of a lawyer is nothing more than predicting what the courts will do. In fact, I predict that this court will, in an appropriate case, if an appropriate case comes before it, limit New York Times versus Sullivan and make it easier for public figures to prove defamation without proving uh, the kind of reckless disregard for the truth that is now required. Uh, by the way, I think that in a lot of these cases, the New York Times, for example, is guilty over and over and over again of reckless disregard for the truth, uh, either by commission or uh, omission. Uh, they leave things out because they don't serve their narrative. They put things in that are highly questionable because it serves their narrative, um, but they do it in a way that just deceives uh, the public, not uh, a particular uh, individual. Um, the New Yorker does that too. Um, the New Yorker, for example, in a recent article claimed categorically that I'm a supporter of torture. I've written probably 25 articles in which I have said, I am categorically opposed to torture as a matter of principle and morality. I am in favor of 
a warrant before anybody is tortured, you should have to get a judicial warrant. That's not because I approve of torture, it's because I disapprove of torture and want to limit it and make it available only, um, let me put it a little differently. I don't want to make it available at all, but it's going to be done. It's going to be used if there were ever a ticking bomb situation where they captured one of two terrorists uh, who planted a bomb in the Capitol or in the Empire State Building, and there were only hours left before it would go off and there wasn't enough time to rescue the people. Believe me, torture would be employed by any democracy, any democracy in the world. And my point, of course, is that if that's going to happen, it should require a judicial warrant, which they would get, but they should put the judiciary in the middle. They shouldn't allow individual policemen to make that decision. In any event, I am categorically opposed to torture. Yet the New Yorker said I was in favor of torture, and then they refused to, at least up to now, haven't printed my letter in which I quote from my articles that I'm against torture. So, you know, the New Yorker too, uh, total, utter disregard for, for, for the truth. And yet it's regarded as, you know, the New York Times and the New Yorker are the holy grail. Uh, they're not holy. Um, uh, well, holy with an H. They are full of holes um, in their um, honesty. And, um, and that's true, I'm sure of media on the left and on the right as well. Media today have breathing room and they are using that breathing room to choke the truth. And so I think you're gonna see the Supreme Court um, push back a little bit uh, on that. As a strong advocate of the First Amendment, I'm of mixed views. I wanna see as much speech as possible, but I don't believe people should have the right deliberately to make up stories and lie about individuals and destroy their reputations on partisan grounds, which is what of course, is being done today by, uh, by many in the media. So we'll keep watching um, the Alex Jones case. I'll keep reporting on it. Um, um, I don't have uh, a firm prediction as to the outcome, except I do think that the amount of punitive damages will be reduced. And I probably think that unless that issue involving the lawyers disclosing of um, messages, unless that becomes a central issue on appeal and unless it prejudices the case. Uh, I, I think the, the merits uh, will, be, will be affirmed and the focus will be largely on the punitive uh, damages. But look, I've been right before, I've been wrong before. I've been right more often than I've been wrong, uh, as contrasted to, for example, Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, and, and Larry Tribe, who are wrong much, 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 much. I can go much, much, much on uh, more often than they're right because they don't predict. They uh, engage in wishful thinking. Their ideology is what determines what they tell you, not what they analyze based on the shoe on the other foot. Uh, neutral principle, something that I'm very close to, as I'm sure you know. So stay tuned. Alex Jones is not over yet. Let's turn now to uh, the letters, most of which dealt with <clears throat> abortion. Um, okay. Roe lied in the original ruling. It was based on fraud. That's right. She claimed she was raped and she wasn't, but that didn't really affect the outcome of the case. The right belongs to the state. Less federal government in our lives is a good thing. A lot of that, a lot of the opposition to Roe versus Wade focuses on we should have states' rights. States should determine things. States are the integral unit. Um, uh, let's read more. Um, uh, 
What hurts most is total control by the federal government to usurp states' right, um, et cetera, et cetera. Hypocritical. Why? In the same month, the Supreme Court decided that the states have to decide abortion. They took away power from the state to decide who owns guns and who should have access to guns. Don't you think that that issue is something for the states? Um, the Second Amendment was all about the states. It was about state militias. Um, and uh, you'd think that the laws should be a little different <clears throat> in urban New York than in Wyoming, um, that they should be very different in upstate New York than in New York City, um, different in, in Southern Illinois than in Chicago. Where is the fuss when the federal courts, the Supreme Court, takes away from the states the right to regulate guns? You know, it's not about that. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You just like guns and you don't like abortions. Be honest about it. So don't talk about states' rights. That's just a pretext for you. You don't care about structural issues in the Constitution. You want to reduce the number of abortions because you think it's murder. And you want to increase the number of guns because you think that's a good thing to do. That's what this is about. All right, here's one. I dare Professor Dershowitz, I dare Professor Dershowitz to discuss the pre-Roe authority on rights and Roe versus Wade. I dare anyone to show me when he mentions this on a show even once. All right, I'm mentioning it right now. Here's the pre-Roe authority. It's called Griswold versus Connecticut. It was the first case. I knew the case well because I lived in Connecticut when it began. Um, and in Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court articulated a right of marital privacy, a right of a married couple to have birth control, opposed by the Catholic Church, opposed by many uh, religious fundamentalists. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court said, too bad. Um, there is a right of of privacy. Now, I agree with you. Extending the right from birth control, which doesn't involve anything else, it's just blocking a sperm from merging with an egg and creating uh, a zygote. That's different from when a zygote has already been created. How different? I think it depends. During the first um, weeks of uh, pregnancy, not very different at all. During late-term pregnancies, um, uh, very, very, very different. And that's why I'm not a proponent of uh, late-term abortion, except when the life of the mother or the health, serious health of the mother is at stake. And uh, when, a, uh, when a child can be removed from a mother's womb safely and viably and given to uh, adoptive parents, um, that's what I would uh, favor in those situations if it could be done safely and without danger to the, to the mother. Um, so I accept your dare, I accept your challenge. There was authority for it. Would I have written Roe versus Wade? No, I wouldn't have written it if I had been uh, a justice. And um, uh, would I have dissented? Don't know, I probably would have concurred and probably would have um, uh, written about other rationale, uh, gender discrimination, equal protection, um, I would have found the right to privacy in sources other than what was found by the uh, Supreme Court. I see privacy in the Fourth Amendment and in the Ninth Amendment 
as well. But I would have recognized, too, that the right of a woman to bodily integrity and privacy is uh, in conflict with the right of a four-month or five-month fetus. And we'd have to resolve that issue. And the question at that point is, who resolves that issue? By the way, in a democracy, under the rule of law, often the most important question is who gets to decide it. Is it the state or the federal government? Is it the courts or the legislature? Is it people by referendum or by other forms of popular vote? Who decides is often the most critical question in any democracy. And of course, our democracy was unique. We were the first country in the history of the world to divide authority into six. If you look at England, for example, all the authority is vested in parliament. Yeah, the queen or the king nominally has some authority, but certainly not um, in the last hundred years or so. Um, but it's a parliamentary system. That's true of every parliamentary system. The parliamentary system doesn't have three branches, legislative, executive, judicial. In England, they're now beginning to move a little bit more toward an independent judiciary. The judiciary used to be solely a function of parliament. The House of Lords was the Supreme Court. Now there's uh, a bit more uh, independence. But when we invented uh, our constitution, um, we were the first country to divide it in six. Why do I say six? State versus federal, that's two. Legislative, judicial, executive, that's three. Three times two is six. So there are six decisional units um, at play um, in these kinds of situations. You have to decide whether it's allocable to the states or the federal government. If it's allocable to the states or the federal government, whichever it is, you have to decide whether it's done through legislation. I'll give you an example, the 12th Amendment. It says the states decide uh, who votes and how voting should occur in presidential elections. But it also says that it's the state legislature. It's one of the rare times when the Constitution not only says something belongs to the states, but it specifies which branch within the state. So the governor can't do it and the judiciary can't do it. It's only the legislature under the 12th Amendment. And that's why the Pennsylvania vote in 2020 should not have been allowed to go forward. Um, that was unconstitutional because the governor had allowed people to vote for several days beyond what the legislature has said. Now, the number of votes wouldn't have affected and changed the outcome of the election, but it was an unconstitutional act by the governor because the United States Constitution, 12th Amendment, specifies that only the legislature has the right to make that decision. Okay. Professor Dershowitz, oh, this is a good one. Do you think your repetitive voicing against the SCOTUS ruling more or less is responsible for recent violence and threats against some of the SCOTUS judges? Boy, that really, really gives me a lot of power. I am gently critical of the Supreme Court decision. Um, I am highly critical of any attempt to intimidate justices, to protest in front of their homes, to protest in front of their restaurants. And yet <laughs> this guy says, maybe I'm responsible for the recent violence and threats against some of the SCOTUS judges. Seems like your statement of condemnation against that violence is not consistent with what you have been doing lately. Total nonsense. Of course it is. I protest the Supreme Court decision. I think it was wrong. I also think it's wrong to protest the Supreme Court decision 
in front of the justices' homes or in front of the restaurants they're eating in, and certainly to threaten violence against them. There's nothing inconsistent about that. The First Amendment gives people the right to protest, and I have the right to protest the Supreme Court decision, just the way people have the right to protest justices. And by the way, the people who have been protesting the justices come from both sides. So it's not my fault, uh, and, and I take no responsibility for that. Okay, even if it did hurt Republicans, remember my question was, did the decision overruling Roe versus Wade hurt Republicans? Even if it did hurt Republicans, that does not justify the first-degree murder of innocent babies by paid assassins using dismemberment and other barbaric, torturous methods. The saving of lives is far too important. I believe far more people are pro-life than Democrats like to believe. You're completely dead wrong. The polls are very clear. Almost nobody in America uh, regards an early term abortion as first degree murder or dismemberment. What you're talking about is late term abortion. And you're right. Uh, most Americans are not in favor of late term abortions. And that's not been the issue. Uh, remember, the case that went before the Supreme Court limited uh, the power of abortions to 15 weeks. If that had been upheld, then you could have abortions during the first 15 weeks. Um, so, uh, and the vast majority of Americans support that. The polls change. If you ask how many support abortion in the first month, you get a very 85%. How many support abortion in the second month, third month, fourth month, fifth? By the time you get to the sixth, seventh, and eighth months, there it's a minority. When you get to the ninth month, it almost disappears. So the question is asked too broadly. Uh, do you favor abortion or don't you favor abortion? Do you favor a woman's right to choose? The question is when? When in the course of the pregnancy? Almost all Americans favor it um, in the days after uh, the zygote is formed. Almost all Americans favor morning after pills. And yet some legislatures are trying to ban morning after pills and early, early, early term abortion. So let's talk sensibly uh, about the issue. Let's not make the mistake that radicals on both sides make. Radicals on the pro-abortion side, some of them, say a fetus is no different than an appendix. Of course it is. Nobody has ever regretted having an appendix removed. An appendix is a nothing. A fetus is a something. And the other side says a one-day-old fetus is no different than a 15-year-old child. That's equally nonsensical. It is a matter of degree, like all important things in life are matters of degree. Do you remember when there used to be a saying, oh, that's like saying she's a little pregnant. Duh, you don't hear that anymore. Because whether she's a little pregnant or a lot pregnant will determine the law as to whether she can get an abortion or not in most states. Okay, lots of issues to discuss. Lots of things on the agenda for tomorrow. I think we'll have a very exciting show tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because there's always breaking news, but I have some ideas. So I hope you'll be back tomorrow for the Dirt Show.